1: on with kevin cyrilli on bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 fm hd2
2: president trump increasing pressure on iran brian hook joins us from the state department And we will get a full-class briefing on the situation with regards to the U.S. maximum pressure campaign against Iran, plus the latest on the 2020 campaign and the U.S.-China trade talks. But first, let's get a quick check of the news, a quick, quick check of the news from my good friend
0: Nancy Lyons. Nancy? Thanks, Kevin. We're still watching Hurricane Dorian. The storm is moving parallel to the East Coast. Its maximum sustained winds are down to 105 miles per hour, but it remains a Category 2 hurricane. It's just east of Jacksonville, Florida. It's moving near nine miles an hour. It is expected to pass close to Georgia and the Carolinas. The U.K. Parliament has rejected Prime Minister Boris Johnson's call for a snap election October 15th. Johnson said that election was the only way out of the deadlock that has paralyzed British politics for the last three years. Back to you, Kevin.
2: Thank you. Joining us on the line is Brian Hook. He is a U.S. Special Representative for Iran. He joins us calling from the U.S. State Department. Brian, thank you for joining us.
5: Thanks, Kevin. Great to be with you again.
2: So earlier today, the administration has announced a new additional sanctions against Iran and signaling that more sanctions might, in fact, be on the way. Tell us what the latest is.
5: Well, today the United States government uh, intensified our campaign of maximum economic pressure against the Iranian regime. Uh, we have been sanctioning a massive um, scheme, uh, shipping scheme, moving oil around the Middle East that found its way to Assad in Syria and also to Hezbollah in Lebanon. And we also announced today that The United States will be uh, giving individuals up to $15 million who can provide information that can lead to the disruption of the Iranian regime's illicit movement um, of various goods and services that eventually go to to fund terrorism.
2: So you mentioned some of these ships, and, and I was really struck by this Financial Times story uh, that, that, that took an inside look in terms of how the administration is trying to, to really go uh, and get this situation settled. Um, and according to, according to the Financial Times, uh, four days before the U.S. imposed sanctions on an Iranian tanker suspected of shipping oil to Syria, the vessel's Indian captain received an, an, an email from a top Iran official at the Department of State, being you. Uh, and essentially, y- y- the, the State Department was offering some financial ties, really, to make sure that this situation got resolved.
5: Well, um, it is the case. I think your your listeners have probably heard about this oil tanker that was seized by Gibraltar, and then it was released, and it's moving its way to Syria. The Iranian regime promised the United Kingdom that the oil would not go to Syria. This is a shipment of like $120 million in revenue. It would be a big cash infusion for Assad and for Hezbollah. So we're doing everything we can to stop it. We have offered ship captains um, awards of many millions of dollars, uh, if they will help facilitate, um, our efforts to stop that boat from, um, reaching its intended destination of Syria.
2: And just to put this in context for folks, I mean, really this is happening in, in real time. And so many of these ships, so many of these, of this, these financial dealings have direct impar- impact, uh, to the energy markets, no?
5: It does. um, But I think the president has done a good job of ensuring uh, a well-supplied and stable oil market. When the president got out of the Iran deal, Brent was trading at 74. One year later, we took off almost 3 percent of the world's oil supply. And um, Brent has gone down dramatically since then. So, Um, We have balanced our national security and economic objectives uh, pretty well, very pleased with how much revenue that we have denied the Iranian regime. They use the oil revenue to fund their military budget, to fund their missile program, their regional aggression, all their proxies like the Houthis in Yemen, Shia militias in Iraq and Syria, Hamas. a whole bunch of terrorist groups. And so we, I think by, by so many metrics, the Iranian regime is weaker today, and its proxies are weaker today than when they were two and a half years ago when we took office.
2: Brian Hook's on the line. He's the U.S. Special Representative for Iran and Senior Policy Advisor to the Secretary of State. Just a couple more questions. Uh, yeah. France, and France's role in all of this, because French the French finance minister is trying to give Iran a 15 billion economic lifeline for oil purchases. I mean, here you and I are talking about the significance of these stable oil markets. And so from a U.S. perspective, from President Trump's perspective, the administration's perspective, what do you make of, of what the French are trying to do with this $15 billion economic lifeline?
5: Well, um, we don't have any details. It's it's existed somewhat abstractly. There's been, um, I think President Macron has talked about a line of credit. But we really don't have any specifics. Uh, what we do know is that we're not, the United States is not looking to grant any exceptions or waivers to our maximum pressure campaign. Uh, the president today, when he was in the Oval Office, uh, answered a few questions on this subject. Certainly people like President Macron, Prime Minister Abe, and many leaders around the world would like to see a de-escalation of tensions in the Gulf. So would we. But the burden is on Iran to start behaving more like a normal nation and less like a revolutionary cause. They have a 40-year history of exporting this revolutionary ideology, trying to create an Iranian crescent of power that extends from Lebanon all the way down to Yemen. And We are standing up to the regime in ways that don't have any historic precedent. Um, We would love to see a new deal, one that replaces the deal that we left over a year ago. And that new deal would cover all of the threats that Iran presents to peace and security.
2: And just uh, you know, while we're while we're on the topic of France, I mean, French President Emmanuel Macron has been saying that uh, there potentially he'd be open to to arranging a meeting with President Trump and President Rouhani uh, of Iran, maybe even at the UN General Assembly. Is that meeting going to happen?
5: Well, as the president likes to say, we'll see. Uh, anything is possible. Uh, The president has now met with uh, Kim Jong-un three times, and he's not afraid to meet with historic adversaries of the United States, but uh, he's keeping, I think, a very close eye on achieving our objectives, which is to get to a new deal that's permanent. The current Iran nuclear deal starts expiring next year in October. We're only 13 months away from the U.N. arms embargo on the world's leading sponsor of terrorism expiring. And so uh, the Iran nuclear deal... It was not a permanent fix to a really big challenge of Iran ever getting a nuclear weapon. So we want to get to a new deal, and that's the president's focus. So,
2: and, and just final question for you, because we, you know, yeah. I mean, we in the media, we parse every single word. <laughs> President Trump has been saying, quote, we're looking for no nuclear weapons, no ballistic missiles in a longer period of time. Very simple. We can have it done in a very short period of time. There, secretary Pompeo has been saying that there are 12 demands. Are the president and the secretary on the same page in terms of what the U.S. wants from Iran?
5: Yes, the president and the secretary are on the same page. Uh, they, they they talk every day or meet every day. Uh, it's, it's a very good and productive uh, working relationship. They have Secretary Pompeo gave a speech after the president left the deal outlining the 12 demands that we would like to see so that um, we can make real progress on, on achieving a more peaceful Iran. And there's different ways to express it. It's definitely the nuclear program. But if you, if you look at at, at, at all of the statements the president has said. He has talked about their nuclear program, the missile testing, missile proliferation to the Houthis and to Hezbollah, which they used to strike Israel. And he's also talked about Iran's regional aggression and its hostage-taking of Americans. This is, the, this is our agenda to get to a new deal.
2: All right, Brian Hook, we're going to have to leave it there. You've been so generous with your time. We always are appreciative of your time. That's uh, Brian Hook. He is the U.S. Special Representative uh, for Iran. He's also a Senior Policy Advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Coming up, more U.S.-China trade policy talk. We also weigh in on the 2020 presidential election. Antoine C writes here as is Scott Tranter. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. I'm Tom Keen. Tomorrow morning at 7. This is Bloomberg's Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
3: Iran is not the same country. When I came into office, uh, Iran was absolutely uh, a terrorist organization, all of from 14 to 18 sites of confliction, and they were behind every one of them. And now uh, you're not hearing so much about that. We'll see what happens.
2: That was President Trump speaking earlier today at the White House about Iran. Earlier in the program, we, of course, heard from Brian Hook. He is senior advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, talking about the new additional sanctions that have been placed upon the Iranians uh, earlier today that was announced from the Treasury Department. Meanwhile, we're still awaiting in the weeks ahead that U.N. General Assembly meeting when the French are saying they could potentially arrange a meeting between President Trump and Iranian President Rouhani. But foreign policy suddenly, at the end, of the summer and heading into the fall, suddenly at the forefront of the domestic political debate uh, here inside of of the Beltway. Joining me here in studio, we're thrilled to have them both, Antoine Seawright, a Democratic strategist, founder and CEO of Blueprint Strategy, and a former senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. And also with us is Scott Trancer, it's his first time on the program, we're thrilled to have him, CEO of Optimist and former data science director. For Marco Rubio's presidential campaign, he's a data guy. Scott's a data guy. Is that, are you, I mean, right?
4: That is correct. I can long divide in my head.
2: <laughs> well, as a journalist, I'm terrified of all math. But this issue of foreign policy, I don't know if you guys saw this just before we came on air. CNN popped this story. Joe Biden says he opposed the Iraq war soon after it started. A check of his record says otherwise. In recent recent speeches and interviews defending his past foreign policy decisions, former Vice President Joe Biden has misrepresented his past position on the Iraq war. Uh, He has said that he was against it very soon after we went to war. He he voted for it. But now the Iraq war, just a week out from the third presidential debate, Scott, is, is back into the back into the mix. I feel like it's the Republican primary all over again.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever you come out and say something like he did, where it can be refuted with uh, a video clip afterwards, you can already tell we're in campaign season when someone's trying to stake something out um, and the media does its job and finds it again. Um, the interesting part is, is I don't think this will be the story 24 hours from now. And I think the numbers are going to show it. We've got a debate coming up. And uh, this is just another long line of gaffes he's got. And uh, it doesn't seem to be hurting him in the polls.
2: Has, has Iraq... Uh, do, do, do voters in the Democratic primary, to care about the Iraq War vote?
6: Absolutely not. Let me tell you why. If they did, and Hillary Clinton would not have been the nominee last cycle. Look, at the end of the day, I think the cake is already baked as it relates to Joe Biden and you know his positions. What people, how people view those positions, and whether or not they choose to support him as a result. And so, I think when these things come up, the only thing it does, in my opinion, is strengthens Joe Biden, and it also shows the disconnect between the the, the beltway bubble, uh, the social media bubble, uh, the people who want to paint a narrative about Joe Biden to hurt him who would never be for him, and the disconnect between actual everyday voters. Well, when you when you talk to regular primary voters, particularly. Uh, African American voters who would decide who the next nominee would be—they care about the war they have every single day of feeding their families and paying their bills. They could give two flying kites about a vote that may have been. I think taken Tulsi before. Gabbard
2: likes this news story. I think it gives an opportunity for Tulsi Gabbard to. did she Is she going to be in the next debate? I don't think she, she will she not. May. She's she not. not. She not. The well, next then debate. you know. Sorry, Tulsi, but uh, it looks <laughs> looks like she won't like that. Uh but no, I think to your point, to Antoine's point, the folks who are not going to vote for Biden. This is just, you know, no one's going to be swayed off of this, is Scott. Uh, and there's this new poll out uh, in Wisconsin. I was struck by this Wisconsin nine poll. points, nine points. Right, former Vice President Joe Biden leads Trump in a hypothetical head-to-head matchup in Wisconsin, according to a Marquette University Law School poll that was released earlier today. Fifty-one percent to forty-two percent among registered voters in Wisconsin. The president also trails Bernie Sanders but it's a it's it's just barely outside of the margin of error at 48 To forty-four, Biden's got good numbers in Wisconsin. The the only
4: thing I'd say about the Marquette Law Poll and poll Charles Franklin is very good at what he does, and the Marquette Law Poll is the gold standard out there. Is he did have um, Senator Clinton leading Donald Trump leading up to the twenty sixteen election in Wisconsin. Um, It obviously didn't turn out that way, and it is of registered voters. And as you know, Antoine would probably agree with me. It's not registered voters that pick it; it's the ones who show up, and that's a smaller universe. So. Also, we're what 16 months out, something right, like that. We got a long Biden, way to go. But
2: if you're Joe Biden and you're trying to make the case that of, electability, exactly. of electability, it, this it, is going
6: to help if he's a, And the other thing about Joe Biden, Kevin, is that the most requested surrogate in the 2018 midterms for Democrats was Joe Biden. Democrats swept the place in Wisconsin in the midterms, so it's a different picture than it was in 2016. And when you think about the voters who show up in Wisconsin, working class white and black voters, uh, those people are more favorable to a Joe Biden-type candidate than anything else. And the scary part should be for the Republicans and Donald Trump is, as I said earlier, the cake is already baked when it comes to Joe Biden's negatives every time therefore, you come on the show you start talking about cake and every
2: time I'm like where's the cake Where you, you get, get you cake? get hungry <laughs> I'm, uh, uh, I'm so, starving. so so
6: therefore there's nothing the Trump campaign can do or say about Joe Biden that people do not already know all right uh, i got so to that, that's the hard part
2: i got to put you both on the spot because you mentioned scott you mentioned these polls the polls were so wrong in the last the last cycle and you're absolutely right to to look at these polls and to question well are they have the pollsters recalibrated and recalculated all of the voters that they forgot in Wisconsin in Michigan Ohio Pennsylvania where I'm from had they have they recalculated how they're going to do these polls you're the data guy tell us
4: yeah so uh, sorry a little bit of nuance and math and you we <laughs> know Wednesday afternoon so what I would say is the polls are right, and the best polls are the ones done privately. There were private polls that had Donald Trump ahead in Wisconsin. Um, those are not the ones that you see on, you know, New York Times or Bloomberg or any of the out- outlets out there. Um, and Bloomberg the reason Bloomberg's always right. Yeah, Bloomberg's always right. The uh, the polls that are done privately are right. They are done differently than the public polls. They're done with different sample frames, which is how we collect the data, whether it's through cell phones or online or text messaging. They're also weighted differently. The whole theory behind polling is is you have a room full of 100 people and you want to know what those 100 people think about but you can't ask all of them so you can only ask 10 that's like- and so you got to make sure you get a representative sample you got to make sure you don't talk to people who are too old too young way too many males way too many females way too many of a certain ethnic group or anything like that so but, you know that's why it's gotten better and that's why the private but, polling but, is always better
6: but, but let, me, let me let me give you one thought uh, the cake was already baked for the third about... Third time, you got to get a new <laughs> one. <third time. laughs> it's like
2: the third time you're done it. Fourth even,
6: I think. Go ahead. Okay, the, the soda did not already have ice in it when it came to <laughs> Donald Trump last cycle. People know who he is. They know his body of work. They know what a Trump presidency will represent. So therefore, the unknown was an attractive factor for some. But there are people who still are left out as a result of the Donald Trump presidency, and those voters on any given cycle will flip back and forth and... I would think Democrats have expanded their universe. When you look at who we attracted in 2018, I think that helps us in 2020. And you know what
2: we're talking about with all these voters is the economy. And coming up, we're going to talk more about the U.S.-China trade policy and how it impacts the policy impacting on these battleground states. Scott, I know you've been really following... These battleground states of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Yep. And I'll get your to cr- get your take to crunch the numbers uh, on that front as well. Panel stays, Antoine Seawright, Democratic strategist, Scott Trancer, former data guru for Marco Rubio's presidential campaign. Download the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the bloomberg business app you can also find us on radio.com iheart radio and spotify i'm kevin cerilli chief washington correspondent for bloomberg television bloomberg radio we're talking trade next you're listening to bloomberg 99.1
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
3: If I wanted to do nothing with China, my stock market, our stock market would be 10,000 points higher than it is right now. But somebody had to do this. To me, this is much more important than the economy.
2: Oh, boy. President Trump talking about my stock market, his stock market. Earlier today at the White House with regards to U.S., China trade policy no deal no deal as it relates on the u.s china economic uh, front but but maybe good news that's because well i'm gonna let president trump tell it in his own terms he says china wants to make a deal here's president trump earlier today at the oval office saying china wants to make a deal here he is
3: if i were china i'd want to make a deal can't tell you, but I want to make a deal. And I can tell you they do want to make a deal. We'll see if we can do a real deal, not a fake deal like the fake media. A real deal.
2: A real deal. Joining us here to talk about the prospects for a real deal, Antoine Seawright, Democratic strategist, founder and CEO of Blueprint Strategy and former senior advisor to Clinton, Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, focusing primarily in the state, the Palmetto State. God's country. Of of South Carolina <laughs> and Scott Traner's here as well. He's CEO of Optimus, former data guru for Marco Rubio's presidential campaign. What do the numbers say about tariffs? I mean, are are Americans plugged into the nuance of what Wall Street and Main Street obsess over and Beijing obsess over? Or are they primarily just watching their four oh one K's and a bit nervous about a, a looming recession?
4: Uh, it's the latter. Most most Americans, their opinions on tariffs basically mirror their partisan politics. It's funny if you look at polling 20 years ago, Republicans were against tariffs and Democrats wanted to use tariffs to enforce, you know, their viewpoint on trade going forward. Today, Republicans generally agree with the president in his tariff trade war and Democrats, you know, oppose it. And so, I don't really think it's really affecting them and we'll see what it looks like in December around Christmas when a lot of these these items that got hit are going to be significantly more expensive.
6: Kevin, most people do not even know what a tariff is. Yep. Outside of the bubble, but what they do know is when they go to Walmart, when they go to Target, when they go to some of these places, and the prices of goods and services that they need go up, and we can pin that back to Donald Trump, that's when they feel it. And if you're a farmer, nine times out of nine if and a half— Farmers
2: know what tariffs well, are. Well,
6: nine times out of nine and a half, you voted for Trump. You know what a Trump presidency has meant to your business and what it would mean to your long term to your long-term financial bill of health.
2: This is where I'm gonna this is where I'm gonna push back on you because the farmers also from their perspective, I've interviewed a lot of farmers. And what what they say is, well, wait a minute. We waited for decades as NAFTA got here, as all of these trade deals got here. And I'm not putting any Democrats on the spot, but they're saying this is long overdue. This fight that we're having with China, whether it's over intellectual property or whether it's over commodities, whether it's over soybeans and sorghum, this fight that we're having with China is long overdue. And, yes, they're primarily Republicans, so they're sticking with their guy. But there are Democrats, and you know this, and being from South Carolina, Boeing country, you call it God country, it's Boeing country. Yeah. And you know this. Those supply chains are absolutely – have been pummeled by China for decades. Decades so where where's the opportunity for a democratic candidate to seize here and offer a new type of trade policy for the party?
6: Well, the opportunity for the Democrats to highlight the immediate impact that these tariffs will have see what you're talking about and you're speaking to is the Long-term sometimes people do not know the severity until they look down and see the bleeding or feel the cut these farmers now, at least the ones I've spoken to, particularly African-American farmers who actually voted for the president uh, in 2016, they see the bleeding and they feel the cut now. And now they realize that this is a danger to our long-term financial bill of health.
2: And I just want to go over the sca- the calendar uh, for, for folks just to kind of you know keep it on the U.S.-China trade watch, full trade watch here at Bloomberg, all day, every day. And we're still potentially going to get – Beijing's delegation headed to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue to meet with the likes of Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, Peter Navarro, uh, the, the Larry Kudlow, the traitors, as President Trump refers to them as the traitors. That meeting potentially still could happen this month. The calendar's crowded calendar. So when potentially that meeting happens, maybe around the U.N. General Assembly meeting later this week when uh, – everyone will be in in the US for for that and then in December and this is what i think some of the mainstream press is starting to pick up on in December an additional round of tariffs i was just on the bloomberg terminal earlier today crunching the numbers i'm not as good as scott with crunching the numbers but you know the terminal helps me out every now, every Great now. terminal <laughs> 160 billion dollars scott 160 billion dollars worth of chinese imports are going to be additionally tariffed come mid December. Yeah, and the president had punted that. So I mean, it's you know Republicans and your party. Well, got- let's
4: look at what he punted. It was really important. What he punted till December fifteenth was things like the RAM that goes in your iPhone, the panels that you're gonna be, you're gonna be on your plasma TV that you buy from Costco, and that was on pressure because everyone you know said where
2: I get my TV. Though, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's that that
4: was what it was. And, and to your point on tariffs, like tariffs is something that that the president does not need congressional approval. He does not need a two-thirds vote. He doesn't got to go through committee. He can wake up one day and say, you know what? I want tariffs. And so despite us um, potentially getting a deal this week, next week, December, January, February, does not mean this doesn't come up again in June, July, August, September, October during election season. If the president wakes up and says, you know what, that deal I struck nine months ago, I think I can get a better one.
2: And this is what I just this is what I would just politely disagree with, not with, with the general zeitgeist, Tom Keene, there you are, the zeitgeist of, of Washington, D.C., and also Beijing and Wall Street, which is you're playing it forward, Scott, for six months, nine months down the road. Play it forward, whether it's two years or six years in a Democratic administration. Democrats have been advocating in recent years, prominent Democrats have been advocating in recent years for tariffs and that could potentially come up at the next democratic presidential debate bernie sanders elizabeth warren have been calling for tariffs it's a divide it's a nuanced divide but it's a divide in the democratic party right now just as much as it is in the republican i want to play president trump's take on tariffs because uh he he the administration has a different take on on how tariffs are impacting the economy here's president trump earlier today at the oval office
3: We have a lot of money because of the tariffs we've taken in. We've taken in tremendous, many billions of dollars of tariffs from China. And we will have a lot of money to be helping our farmers along the coast if they get hit. They may not get hit.
2: President Trump saying that revenue has come from tariffs coming up. We'll talk more policy and politics with our panel. What's on their radar? I can tell you a preview of mine. It regards China and those protests. They're not over, folks. And in fact, the protesters in Hong Kong are saying it's too little, too late. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio. You can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio Brexit Update. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson failed in his attempt to trigger a snap general election in another blow for his Brexit strategy. It's been a rough couple of days for UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He needed two thirds of members of Parliament to support his plan to break up Parliament early for there to be a national poll. But fewer than half, fewer than half backed him. It's been really a fascinating, fascinating to watch our friends across the pond struggle with any type of Brexit dreadlock. He had been arguing that there needed to be an emergency election. And that was the only way out of the brexit deadlock that has paralyzed british politics for the past three years tim ross and robert hutton reporting for bloomberg on that particular issue we've got a cast of political all-stars political aces here with me in studio for what has become truthfully one of my favorite parts of this program which is what is on your radar and this is an opportunity where we get to talk about some different things, some different stories uh, that, are, that are on our radar, maybe not getting as much attention in the markets, in the polls, uh, in the mainstream press as we would hope. But it's an opportunity to dive into the weeds, nerd out a little bit and talk about them. Auth- Antoine Seawright is here, Democratic strategist, founder and CEO of Blueprint Strategy, former senior advisor to Hillary Clinton's South Carolinian Campaign and Scott Tranter, he is CEO of Optimus, former data science director for Marco Rubio's for for president. Uh, he now works at a data-driven strategies company. That's what Optimus designs and delivers data-driven strategies for leading presidential and gubernatorial campaigns and Fortune 500 companies and nonprofits around the globe. All right, so. What is on your radar, Scott Tranter, the data guy?
4: So, it, it's something that, plugging something we do with Firehouse and Optimist, we do, we've been tracking the, uh, the Democratic primary all year, and we've got a poll coming out uh, leading up to the next Democratic debate, which is a big one, because yes. it's the first culling. We're going to see less people on, on, on stage. Most of these candidates were running for four or five months, spent millions of dollars, spent the summer talking to voters. So, we're going to see where some of these people are shaking out, who's actually going to make the next round, who's going to be the people we're talking to as we're just a few months out from Iowa.
2: Okay, so what, do you, what have you been tracking in the polls? What can you tell us in some of these battle, uh, battleground it, states?
4: In some of the battleground states, the most interesting thing we saw last time was we saw Biden war and Warren tied in Iowa. Um, which is a little bit different um, than uh, what people have been tracking nationally, where they had Biden and wa- Warren tied nationally, and then some polls came out and readjusted that. I would say this. Look, if you're looking at polls, the national stuff doesn't matter now. you got to win states. And so look and see where this is tightening in Iowa, South Carolina, Nevada, um, those states going forward. And that's where we're seeing the tightening happening, and we will be interesting to see if this it stays is, that way.
2: This is interesting, Antoine, because this is what was on. We were talking about this yesterday. Iowa, the Hawkeye State, Iowa, and Biden's campaign, Antoine, to Scott Trenner, the data guy, the Republican data guy's point, Biden's campaign had been forecasting this week, hey, we might not win Iowa. So it looks like there's trouble for the Biden campaign in Iowa, Antoine.
6: Kevin, simmer down with that word trouble. Um, Look, you flirt with Iowa, you play footy with New Hampshire, you cuddle with Nevada, I but can. you date I and marry South can. Carolina in a presidential <laughs> preference primary. They do have the best food. And most people know that. And so, while the <laughs> expectations... Not
2: even i don't think anyone can even follow <laughs> what point you're making. What point are you making? Meaning no.
6: that the ball game is in who's South... Who's
2: gonna Ca- win Iowa, Antoine? It doesn't matter. <laughs> who's baking
6: like, the cake in Iowa? It doesn't matter who's baking the cake. It doesn't matter who's putting ice in ice cream in Iowa. What matters is the ball game is in South Carolina <laughs> where 60% of the Democratic vote will be African-American, 55% women. When you look at what happens at the South Carolina, many of the states follow, have the same demographic. And guess what? If you ask Senator Barack Obama in 2008, you ask Hillary Clinton in 2016. Obama won Iowa. As Hillary Clinton in 2016, what well, would tell you? South Carolina was the game changer moment. And while I don't make, I don't make, be. I don't make comparisons to races, but let me tell you, the African American vote this time around will matter even more when you look at the moving up on the map of California but and this Texas. Is,
2: listen, I obviously South Carolina matters. I I totally, wholeheartedly agree that the South South Carolina absolutely matters, but. It is risky political business if history is a judge to to totally ignore Iowa and New Hampshire. I'm not, I'm not saying because those candidates can have the momentum heading into South Carolina and look. No offense to Marco that's Rubio, that's what happened. But that's what happened to Marco. But, but, Rubio. Yeah, you know? but, that's
6: exactly but, what happened. Look, Kevin, that would be convincing wisdom. We are not living in convincing times. If, ah. if so, Donald Trump would never be present Number one. You number some more. Number two, yeah, but you, Donald Trump also won New
2: Hampshire after he lost Iowa on, and then won South Carolina. Look, the,
6: the Republican primary is a beast all by itself. We won't even go there. Okay. But all I would tell you is that you can lose all three states, catch wind in South Carolina and blow your way to being our nominee. And you I win think all
2: two states and win in South
6: Carolina, three states, New Hampshire, uh, Nevada and Iowa. You can three different winners and still catch wind in South Carolina and blow your way to our nomination. I'm you gonna wanna, disagree with you, but we're allowed to disagree. We're allowed to disagree. You want to know what's on my mind? Number one, North Carolina. Well, nine. What's on,
2: it's actually what's on your
6: radar. Well, what's on my radar is on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> North Carolina nine, a special election next Tuesday. North
2: Carolina nine, we have it's time. a good one. It's a spe- we have time.
6: It's a special election. Okay. Uh, Why play, is this on your radar? Well, a Democrat has not held the seat since 1963. Donald Trump won. Where is North Carolina? North Carolina nine is uh, suburban Charlotte. Suburban Charlotte. Republicans got to win that Fayetteville, uh, Lumberton County. Uh, Republicans have carried it since the 1960s. Trump's won by 12 points. The race is neck and neck. Trump is expected to go there next week because they had no idea that Dan McCready was going to be in this position. The election was stolen from him last cycle. The biggest case of election fraud in my political lifetime. So it's a race to watch. That's on my radar and on my mind. And I think what's also on my mind, this is a little humorous, but I don't Wait, know. Before
2: we get into humor, I want to get your take on North Carolina 9.
6: Yeah, no, I agree. If I had a
4: second big thing to do with North Carolina 9, as Antoine pointed out, Republicans
2: have to win those suburban
4: districts. Yeah. And that's, that, that is the quintessential suburban district. When I used to teach at the RNC Political Ed School, that was the district we trained on because it had Today multiple- Today I learned that there yeah. is an
2: RNC- Republican, what is it called? Operative school, where they o- teach There's operatives. Operative how to run school at their
4: RNC? Yeah. yeah, the Dems have it too, and that yeah, was the district like, we used. It's
2: like, like, like Hogwarts of operatives. Yeah, like, kind of Hogwarts. We have it you too, dark arts of yeah. politics. We have it too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Bottom
4: line, though, is that was the district we used yeah. because that was a perfect example of a cross-section district that
2: represented America. Scott Schroeder, Republican data guru, what are some of the top issues in suburban America that that are that are playing out? And, and special elections like North Carolina, nine. Honestly, it's it's not.
4: It shouldn't be a surprise. It's the economy. At the end of yeah. the day, these folks want to make sure they can afford the milk at the grocery store. There's 150 channels on the TV, and they can pay their mortgage, and they got Gosh. enough money for their kids to go to college. And quality. so those quality. are quality of life issues.
2: Quality of life, because that's what people care K. about. What about gun control?
4: How does that play in the suburbs? So that's interesting. I, and I'd be curious to hear what Anton because When we poll it, it's one of those things people care about, but whether they vote on it is different. And it is certainly polarizing. If you care about it, you vote on it either direction. But I wouldn't say it's a top three issue that the, the middle is
2: voting We're on. We're learning a lot on this on your radar, if I do say
6: so. Well, Anton- I, can just, I can tell you this different strokes to different folks for some Certainly. it is an emotional issue because they've been impacted For others it's just trying to figure out how to make the day work and the night not be a nightmare for them uh, and that's where quality of life starting with healthcare, has been the number one issues from the time Donald Trump has taken office until now uh, and you've seen that play out in 18 I think you, you will see that play out in 2020 and so on,
2: because we like you on this show so much yeah. usually like you only theory. get one What's on your radar, but I'm gonna give you two if you can make the second one quick.
6: Jay-Z is going to be engaged with the NFL. That is gonna blow Donald wait. Trump's mind. Wait, <laughs> the football season. Yeah, no, that will, that will. <laughs> that will. Okay, wait, okay, wait. Because
2: wait, I read that he said that that Jay-Z was quoted in in an article and I'm totally blanking on which one, where he said that they had moved on past kneeling and that engaged in a in a back and forth. But that is going to be huge if Jay-Z is involved mm-hmm. in no, this. He, he
6: is. He's partnering with NFL, and that is going to blow Donald Trump's mind because, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce were out front for Hillary Clinton in 2016, yeah, well, and that set off President Trump. <laughs> yeah, but just Kanye reading. is going to be in the booth, just right? So, <laughs>
2: just
4: I, wanted, I want to see Kanye do you jacked just up.
2: Reading, just, reading, just reading on Vox.com, they're reporting on Jay-Z. It was supposed to be good news, the joining of a beloved beleaguered sports group corporation and a heralded rapper in the name of entertainment and social justice instead it added fuel to an ongoing controversy on august 13th the nfl announced that it was entering a partnership with rock nation the entertainment company founded and led by rapper and mogul jay-z you know i'm a football fan my eagles are going to beat the redskins this weekend let me tell you what's on my radar this was such a great segment today folks i really appreciate it Hong Kong, I mean, we talked earlier about U.S.-China economic trade policy, but Carrie Lam's move to formally withdraw a bill allowing extraditions to China may well have ended the Hong Kong unrest in June, but now protesters want a lot more. And they're ready and they're willing to fight. This is according to the Bloomberg Terminal. It's been three months, three months of at time's violent demonstrations and Hong Kong's leader made her most significant concession yet On Wednesday evening in a somber televised address she told an anxious city that she was meeting a demand from protesters to officially scrap a proposal that ended up sparking the worst unrest since the former colonies returned to Chinese rule in 1997. This has been a fascinating issue. The the Hong Kong protests one could easily make the case have been grossly underestimated by President Xi Jinping's uh, government. uh, And Everyone predicted that they would end, and they're still going on, still going on even after Carrie Lam's move to formally withdraw a bill allowing extraditions to China. That's what's on my radar. We're going to be following for that all week. I want to thank Antoine Seawright. I want to thank Scott Tranner and, of course, Brian Hook from the State Department for joining us today. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, jam-packed show, tons of topics. Thanks for tuning in to Bloomberg 99.1.